0: voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen
1: voiceover on
0: settings so you can navigate it just by listening books contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day accessibility there's more to iphone how does appreciation feel to you a rising rush of warmth a building wave of confidence. At Reward Gateway Eden Red, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. Yo.
1: Technology what is it all about we went from like from nothing like our company was worth nothing to worth like 25 million dollars to worth 100 million dollars to worth a billion dollars to worth zero all in the course of like 18 months it was a roller coaster and we were you know 20 20 years old you know
0: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. How are you all? I am on holiday this week, but the pod obviously must go on. And we have a very cool guest for you this week. Um, you're really going to like him. He is Jeff Lawson. He is the founder of Twilio. And Twilio is one of those tech companies whose name you see around a lot, certainly out here, but maybe you're not quite sure exactly what they do. Okay, I'll speak to myself. That was my view. Now I know. So Twilio is one of those classic picks and shovels type companies. They offer cloud-based communications, automation services to companies, big and small. And so uh, they basically make sure that, you know, the company you may have bought something from texts you when your order is ready or has been shipped or your food's on the way or they do chatbots, all kinds of stuff like this, generally making it easier for companies to operate online. And as I say in the interview, they kind of remind me of Stripe, you know, the big payments company because they're all part of this crop of companies that have come up in recent years that are doing really well by creating tools that are really enabling this huge shift of business and life more generally online. And Lawson has some great pros to share. He started the company back in 2008 obviously still runs it now um the company is worth more than 60 billion dollars which means he's worth about two and a half billion which you know not bad uh just another billionaire on the danny in the valley podcast anyhow he talks about all the companies he founded before what he learned how and why he started twilio what the pandemic has done to his business and kind of where things are going from here so i think you will really get a lot out of this jeff is also very thoughtful about, you know, the kind of the role of tech in society and specifically the role of those who've done really well out of tech in society. Uh, And so we spoke this week because they have their annual conference and this year they had Michelle Obama speaking because, you know, why not? So I razzed him a bit about the fact they had to move our slot to make room for the former first lady because they had to have a chat before she came on. So anyhow, that is what you're about to hear this week. So I will stop talking now and hand you over to my conversation with Jeff Lawson, the CEO and founder of Twilio. Enjoy. First of all, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. But I have to say, I was deeply, deeply offended. We had this whole thing set up, and then Michelle Obama comes in and takes my slot.
1: (laughs) She, you know she has a way of doing that and uh i am i am unapologetic
0: <laughs> but yeah so I think before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of it all I thought it would be worth just setting as a baseline just talk about twilio and what it is because it's funny it's um I've gone through a lot of the company kind of literature and whatnot, and there's a lot around trying to explain what Twilio is. And you guys are a $60 billion company, obviously very successful. But it's not like you're making a thing that people can be like, oh, yeah, well, that's what that is. You guys do a lot. So is, uh, I'm sure you have an elevator pitch to explain to our listeners what exactly you guys do, how it all works, and kind of what Twilio is. Absolutely. Uh, That's a great question to start off with. So Twilio is a platform that allows
1: companies to engage with their customers using kind of every variety of communications you can imagine, which is, you know, voice calls and text messages and video and chat and email, but also data, data that companies are assembling about their customers, you know, like what they view, what they buy, what they click on and take their data and take communications to really build leading customer engagement with their customers. And it's all delivered as a cloud platform, and it's designed for builders to go be able to build these amazing experiences that we all have every day. And so when you think about it, think about the great digital companies of our era, these folks are our customers. So, you know, Netflix or Uber or Lyft or Airbnb, but also the incumbents in every field, like major banks, like, you know, ING Bank or, you know, Marks and Spencer or the insurance group, BGL, like every company in this digital era that we're in is having to figure out, okay, how do I become a digital leader? Like, how do I create those great experiences, whether it's in mobile apps, on the web, or across all these different channels? How am I going to make my company and my product Really work and create that great customer relationship in this digital era, and that is the act of like listening to customers and building you know all these amazing experiences that we have when we work with these companies and Twilio is one of the core ingredients in these apps that you interact with all the time, and you think about it, think about all the great apps on your phone and we now run our lives in these apps right, yeah. Think about all the apps on your phone that you use every day. Like, what are the core ingredients of all these apps? Well, there's like servers and there's data storage and there's maps and there's payments and there's communications. And so Twilio is providing the infrastructure for every company to be able to create great digital communications as a part of all the experiences that those companies are building. And that's what we do. And we're baked into, you know, we've got 200 and and almost 50,000 customers. Uh, that use our platform. There's over Mm. 10 million software developers who are in our ecosystem, who are building the apps that you use every day, who use Twilio to make those apps more engaging with great communications and and understanding you, their customer with great data and then using that to personalize all of these
0: experiences that you have. And so like, for example, like when I go order Uber Eats and I know Uber is a customer, I don't know if you do this, but like you get a text, it's going to, you know, your food is on the way, all that kind of stuff. Or like if I'm on, whatsapp and i get texts from you know some company i'm doing something with etc that whole automated piece of what i'm doing and using online that's what you guys do
1: yeah exactly you made it real even better than i did so thank you danny yeah
0: if, you, <laughs> if your food is
1: getting delivered uh, and we work with like you know almost all the right. delivery companies where it's like oh, you get a you get a text message whether it's an SMS or via WhatsApp saying oh you know your your driver is approaching with your order or let's say you have to call the driver inside that app because they're not finding your your front door for some reason mm. that's powered by Twilio you know the email that you get uh, as a follow up saying you know here's your digital receipt uh, that's powered by Twilio our email platform. And so if you just think about these experiences you have, whether it's, you know, food delivery or ride sharing or renting an apartment or buying insurance or, you know, doing business with your bank, those interactions are so full of all of these, you know, text message notifications, digital conversations happening over chat, voice calls, emails, etc. And like Twilio is helping these companies to really build these amazing experiences. You know, one of my favorite customers actually in the UK is a, is an organization called age UK. Oh yeah. You know them? Yep, yeah. Yep, yep, They allow folks to call someone who might be lonely. So if you've got time, like yes. you're, especially, you know, the elderly folks who might be at home, who might be alone and age UK built this amazing service on top of Twilio that it, like, if you volunteer, you pick up the phone and you, you dial and in a very privacy respecting way, it will connect you to someone who's home alone. And people just have these half hour long conversations with an elderly person who's alone and just wants to talk. And so like, that's an interesting service. And so with 200 and almost 50,000 customers, you can imagine people are building just about everything you can imagine on top of our platform. And that's one of the really cool things because Twilio is for software developers to go build on top of.
0: Right. And software developers are kind of like everywhere now exactly the classic software has eaten the world or is eating or is continuing to snack on the world
1: (laughs) i mean i think we can safely say that there's 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 a whole lot of eating that's gone on right i mean software think about our lives Mm. now you know our lives are are increasingly run by by the software the software on our phones or on the web and just think about how every part of our life is now becoming an experience that is like made better because of the great software we get to use and that is being built by the millions and millions of developers in the world.
0: So can we go back to 2009 when you founded this company?
1: Yeah, 2008, yeah.
0: 2008, apologies.
1: A classic off-by-one error, no worries. I'm a software developer. Uh, exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> I mean, obviously the world is, is wildly different than it was back in 2008. But what did you see then? Because a lot of this seems super obvious. And obviously a lot of kind of good ideas in retrospect seem obvious. But at the time, they seem less so. And I I was doing some research and I saw that one of the very early guests on this podcast, Mitch Kapoor, was, I believe, your first investor. Yeah. He has a knack for just backing the right people. He's pretty incredible that way. But what was the pitch back then? Because also, if it's cloud-based, that was early, early, early days. So it feels like this was, maybe there was just some dim outlines, but I don't know if you can go travel back to 2008 and talk about what was happening then and what the idea was back then
1: yeah well you know, I mean I'll start by telling you with why we started the company so I'm a software developer I have been you know writing code for what 25 years mm-hmm. and I'm a serial entrepreneur so I had started multiple companies before twilio and I was also one of the first product managers at Amazon Web services but when I was at Amazon I got exposed to this idea that like the infrastructure of the internet can be exposed to software developers as these really easy to use apis and that if you give these sophisticated global scale you know building blocks to developers that they can build amazing things yeah and that the internet is fundamentally this uh, democratizing force that allows companies to go if you've, if you've got the right idea you can go build that app and you can go put it on the internet and if it's got merit and customers like it like you can You can do amazing things. And so uh, when I left Amazon, I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I thought back to my three prior startups and like what we were doing with those startups. They were all very different companies. The first one was an academic content company online. The second one was a company called StubHub. It allowed people to buy and sell live event tickets online. It's like Viagogo in the UK, right? Yeah, yeah. And the third company I started was, of all things, a bricks-and-mortar retailer for extreme sporting goods skateboarding what? snowboarding so, yeah right yeah.
0: it's a total are you a skater or a boarder or like what, what no. how did that come about
1: <laughs> i don't i don't do any of the sports that's a longer story. if you want to get into it danny i will it's a longer story
0: i'm so fascinated because you're you, as you say you're a coder and you're doing all of these obviously very tech focused companies and then do you have the left field idea
1: yeah well so after uh Stubhub, i I, I went off into like this, uh, isolated place, lived at the, you know, the summer home of one of our investors. Where was this? This was in the Hamptons in, in New York on Long okay. Island, which yep. during the summer is this hopping amazing place, totally. it's a vacation town in the middle of the winter. When I was there, desolate, empty, no one is there. Totally. They don't even plow totally. the roads when it snows. So myself and my co-founder, we went out there and we just kind of hold ourselves up in this, uh, you know, it's kind of like The Shining, almost. You know, the, the Winter Home. Right? We're, we're like the caretakers of the Winter Home. Uh, luckily, there was no murdering. Yeah. But what we were doing was trying to figure out the idea for our next business, and we did a bunch of brainstorming and researching of ideas, mm-hmm. and we brainstormed like a thousand ideas for companies. We wrote like thirty business plans, and strangely, of all the ideas we came up with, the one that we could all agree on that we thought was like a, a, a great business idea was this one for bricks and mortar retail or, for, or retail for extreme sporting goods. Because at the time it was like, you know, the X games and these sports were, were just exploding. Mm. The, the market was growing like 30% year over year. And the retail presence for these sports was,
0: was pretty low, yeah. It was
1: pretty anemic. Like it was there's some a bunch yeah. of mom mom and pops that were like very authentic and nice stores, but you know, the selection was poor and the service was usually pretty, yeah. pretty bad. And like, you know, if the owner was, wanted to go surf, they would just close the store and leave. You know, it's like <laughs> so it was like, yeah, you know, we kind of thought there'd be this market for a great, like a retailer. And you know, here in the United States, we've got this chain called REI that's for hiking and climbing and camping and it's these great stores, there's great selections. The people there are fantastic. And, and we like, well, can't we do that? But for these sports, the, uh, you know, skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, make an experiential store. We put a, we put a skate park right in the middle of the store. So we did a bunch of really cool things, but, wow. and then, you, you know, back to your question, what, what was I doing? Cause I'm not a skater. I'm not a surfer, Yeah, but as a technologist, I thought it was actually a really interesting question of if you were starting a brand new retailer in the year two thousand and two, what could you build? What kind of experiences could you build? Like you have no legacy to deal with, and you could just build this experiential store. What would you do? And I thought that was really interesting. And so we built out all these. Now, first of all, I had to build out the fundamentals. I had to build a point of sale system and all the, the back of house stuff shipping and receiving and ordering and all this kind of stuff but then on top of that I was able to build automation and do a lot of interesting stuff and then for our customers we built a member program where we took their picture at the register and they got a card printed with their photo on it and they could use that card to like buy stuff in our stores and get rebates back and everything they bought we had the skate right. park and in the skate park there were cameras that automatically snapped their pictures and attached it to their online profile and like I mean we' were just going to town creating this really interesting cool technology. But nonetheless, you know, after a while, I did say, why am I in the back of a skate shop writing code? This is kind of silly. <laughs> uh, and that's when I joined Amazon and right. uh, joined Amazon Web Services. So anyway, so back to the story. When I left Amazon, I was thinking through, OK, what do I want to start next? And I realized that all three of my prior companies, even though they were completely different businesses, had two things in common. First was that at every one of those companies... We were using the power of software to build a better product or customer experience than like anything else people would be accustomed to in, our, in the respective industries. And to me, as a software developer, the superpower of software has always been the ability to go listen to a customer, like hear their problem. What, how is the status quo not serving you? And when you hear what you think is their problem, you go out and you very quickly build a prototype, the answer to whatever they think the problem is. Yeah. And you put it out in front of those customers and you say, you know, are, we, are we on the right track? And they give you feedback and you're constantly iterating your way towards a better and better product and customer yeah. experience. I'm like, the job of building software is never done. Think about all those apps on your phone. They're getting updated Every week, all the time, all the time, they're getting new features and functionality. They're running experiments to say, oh, maybe this feature, maybe that one, what are people going to like? And that's what's so amazing about software is that you can keep learning and keep building constantly throughout the process. But the second experience that I had at every one of those companies was that when we were building out that product or that customer experience somewhere in that journey, whether it's you know your marketing or how are you finding your customers or your sales process or while they're using your product itself or maybe afterwards if they need service and support. Like there's all these touch points you have with your customer and those require communications. And every time we had these amazing ideas for like, oh, we've got this really cool idea for like how we should build this out. And like, oh, when this happens, we want to make their phone ring and like, you know, get this message to them or get this text message or have this phone call happen or whatever it is. We would say, oh, that's such a cool idea. But I'm a software developer. Right. I don't know the first thing about how to make a phone ring, like having some voltage appear on some phone wire somewhere in the world. Like that's magical. I have no idea how that's going to work. And so we turned to the companies that seemed like they did know how it worked. We turned to these like hardware companies like Cisco or we turned to, to carriers. We'd say, you know, we have this idea. Can you help us? And they'd say, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's all what a great idea. We could sure we can help you with that. You know, the first step is we gotta roll out a bunch of copper wires from a carrier to your data center. And then step two, you're gonna buy a bunch of hardware and rack it up. This like telco hardware. And then step three, you gotta go buy this big you know, fancy software thing. And then We got to bring in a bunch of consultants who are like, you know, this very specialized skill set. And they're going to come and we think we can bang the whole thing into submission. Uh, That'll take three years and cost $4 million. Sign here. Let's get started. Right. And every time I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Millions of dollars for this like one part of our customer experience. You know, we're a startup. I don't have that kind of money. But more important than the money actually was the time. Time. It's like this. Let me get this straight. When it comes to communicating with my customers, to really engaging with them, anything I want to do is like a years-long project where I won't know if I'm on the right track until multiple years from now, millions of dollars later, when we put it in front of the customer and then they tell us, oh no, you know what you really should have built was like this over here. And when I learned what I really should have built, well, then it's going to be millions of dollars and years later for the next version to go figure out making progress. And like, this is just diametrically opposed to that ethos of software. And like, how can you expect companies to build these great experiences if once you actually start wanting to talk to your customer, it's this like old waterfall-y type process where everything is slow and expensive and you can't iterate. And so we said, let's go fix that. If I'm having this experience at three companies in a row, I bet every company is struggling with how do I really build an amazing connection to my customers? And so we, we started Twilio back in 2008. To solve that problem of bringing uh, customer engagement, so all those communications channels, Mm. how are you going to build out this great experience, bringing that into the era of software and making it accessible to the software developers of the world as APIs, as building blocks that they can take, they can plug into all those apps they're building and suddenly be able to talk to their customers easily, inexpensively, and in a way that lets them build that prototype in an afternoon. And when it works, launch it at global scale. And keep iterating on it as time goes on and really bring that superpower of software finally into the world of communication.
0: So I'd be interested to get your sense of where we are in the world right now. So you started this in 2008. It's an idea. Now it's a $60 billion public company with, you say, 250,000 customers? Yeah, almost. But just hearing you talk, it reminds me of a company like Stripe. Like these companies that just like, we're going to make it really easy for anybody to kind of do stuff online in a way that's just wasn't even possible, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, and that there's a whole class of kind of these enabling companies, you know, almost like the um, creating the plumbing for all of this new software centric world. But then you step back and you look at what's happened with COVID and what that has done to our habits around e-commerce, telemedicine, all of these things. And it feels like things have, at the same time have changed dramatically. And also, we're just kind of getting started. But I'd love to get a sense from you of where you think we are, because you obviously must have seen some pretty dramatic changes, not only in the past 12, 13 years, but also in just the past 18 months. Well, look, I mean,
1: I think we are still at the infancy of figuring out how this technology can be making our lives better, making human beings Better at what they do, you know, happier, more productive, more focused, and you know, the grand scheme of things, the internet and mobile phones and all this kind of stuff. We're still at the very beginning. We're still figuring out what all this technology is going to do for us. And what I think about what we do, what Stripe does, what Amazon Web Services is doing for Mm -hmm. this digital economy is, we are the supply chain that is allowing every company out there to go be their best. Digital selves to go build these amazing experiences. And, you know, I am from Detroit originally, and Detroit's the automobile, you know, we, we would say the automobile capital of the world, right? It's like where all the American auto manufacturers were. It was like, you know, it was Car Town. Oh, yeah. The Motor City, we call it. And, you know, when I think about cars, because I grew up around that industry, it was kind of obvious. Like, you have this supply chain. And, like, when Ford is making a car, you know, there's, a, there's suppliers for the steering wheel and the buttons and the handles and the wheels and the tires. And the, yeah. know, there's a, a supply chain of all these companies that, like, make the various parts that allow automakers to put together a finished assembled car. Right. And you're like, that makes sense. We can all visualize how that process works. But, in the early days of software and computers, there were really only a few companies that were able to build software effectively. Yeah, Microsoft and Oracle and SAP and you know a very small number of companies that were really the software companies of the world. Yeah. Well, what's yeah. happened because of the internet and because of mobile is every company has really had to become a great builder of software and digital experiences. Yeah. And in that world, all those companies, they can't build it all themselves. No, they need a supply chain, just like any industry has, of companies that specialize in delivering the various things that you need in order to then go build uh, on top of it. And that's what has happened over the last 10, 15 years, is the software, the digital supply chain for the internet has emerged to make it easy for companies to say, okay, if we have to go build these amazing mobile apps and these amazing digital experiences, we can pull, you know, compute and storage off of the infrastructure providers like Amazon. We can go get payments from Stripe. We can go get communications and customer engagement from Twilio, and we're gonna mix these things together to go build out what is our differentiation, our secret sauce, the customer experience that that we want to create. We're not beholden to just some vendor or someone who's gonna has to go build it for us. Actually companies have to become builders of these experiences in order to win in this digital economy therefore they need this supply chain the companies that enable them to go build and that's what we're doing and i and i really believe that like you know look if you think about the evolution that is going on in every industry think about every industry real estate hospitality financial services insurance transportation i mean you name it the list goes on i think that every industry is in the middle of a almost literally darwinian evolution Mm. that i call build versus die and here's (laughs) here's why i think it's that okay right start roll back the clock 20 years you remember 20 years ago and it was thought of as like oh that's not strategic you outsource it it's a cost center and look 20 years ago that was pretty much true because you know it was like does the printer of paper in it and, uh, you know, the financial system in the back office, is it working, right? And Like in that world, yeah, you would have this question. You would say, oh, sh- should I build versus buy? It was always the classic build versus buy. Yeah. Right? And you'd say, oh, well, we need a new financial system. Should we build it or buy it? And look, you know, Oracle would walk in and say, we've already invented this wheel. The financial system is yeah. not strategic yeah. for you. You just need it to work. Why would you go reinvent it? And sure enough, you just bought financials from somebody. And that made a ton of sense. Because it was the back office. Because your customers didn't care anything about that. But now, roll the clock ahead, you've got the web, you've got mobile. These are the experiences that your customers actually perceive as the value proposition. That is how you differentiate in the market. Think about your bank. Twenty years ago, your bank was a place that you walked in the front door of. And if there was a you know a new coat of paint and they had enough parking and they gave your kid a lollipop, you'd say, Oh, you know, I like my bank. It's a pretty good bank. Nowadays, your bank is a mobile app on your phone. And if the app doesn't crash and they, you know, they added the new face unlock feature, you know, those are the things that say, oh, I like my bank. It's easy to use. And so in that world, companies have to build those digital experiences. And here's what happens in industry after industry. You know, you've kind of got the status quo. And then along comes some startup. You know, typically it's like, you know, maybe a young company and their like, core competency is building great software. And they enter the market and out of necessity, they go listen to customers and say, okay, well, how can I serve you better? Otherwise, I won't be in business. And they learn like how the status quo isn't working for customers, and they go build that. And then if they've solved a problem, they start growing, and they raise a bunch of venture capital, and they get a lot of press, and they start winning some hearts and minds and wallets, and they start growing. And then the incumbents wake up and look at it, like, oh, wow, look at those folks. They're getting a lot of attention. Well, we better do something. And those people over there, they're builders. They're creating this experience. If we're going to answer the call, like we have to become builders. And so they start hiring software developers, and they start building. And one by one, every participant in the market realizes that they, too, have to go build these amazing digital experiences in order to thrive, in order to, to acquire customers and keep those hearts and minds and wallets of their customers with them. And if you think about evolution, it is the people, the ones that survive are the ones that are able to best adapt. To changing circumstances. And that's exactly what's happening in every industry. And because software moves at such a fast pace, you have to build. You have to adopt software if you're going to adapt to the changing pace. And so literally, you have this market dynamic where the question is no longer, is it build versus buy? No, no, no. It's build versus die. Right. Because if you aren't building and the market is changing and the requirements your customers have keep going up and up and up and the expectations, then you are going to fall behind and you are slowly going to lose your business. And so this build versus die world that we're in, I think, is permeating every industry out there. And now you look at what's happened in the last 18 months through the pandemic. Yeah. And you know, if you say that the ability to adapt is the ability for companies to thrive, and you know, if you think about you know, necessity is the mother of invention, well, the last 18 months have created the necessity for so much change, so much adaptation to a changing world. Where all, I mean, think about it. Almost all of our face-to-face interactions had to go virtual.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was just talking with my wife the other day because our four-year-old was sick again this week.
1: Oh, man. I'm sorry to hear that.
0: And it's all right. He's he's much better now. He's finally back at school. But we've had probably six telehealth visits in the past 18 months. And in my previous 43 and a bit years, I've had zero.
1: Yeah. And so think about that. That's a great example because necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And there has been telemedicine for a while now, but there hasn't really been a forcing function that said, hey, do we, you know.
0: The idea would have been like, what? No, I'm going to go to the doctor's office. Yeah, exactly. But then you kind of do it and then you're like, why would I go to the doctor's office? <laughs> Most of the time.
1: You think about it and you're like, for most of these appointments, like, why would I take a half day off of work and like get an appointment that's like a month from now, drive across town, sit in the waiting room, yeah. or I kind of assume I'm getting more sick by being around all these other sick people. <laughs> and that's for, you know, folks who have means. Now I'll think about a lot of folks who maybe have, you know, who are wage workers. For sure. And who, you know, maybe live in rural areas where to get to that specialist for their kid. They have to drive, you know, for four hours to get to like a regional medical yeah. center, and so they have to take a day or maybe two days off of work, and they're not making their their wages. They have to decide between making income and having their kids see a doctor. Yeah. You're like, what kind of choice is that? And I know, by the way, these concepts of like how medicine works for the British audience is going to be really foreign for us Americans. <laughs> they're like, why? How does it work? No, I can't. I cannot defend our system. Um, but it's terrible. It's terrible. But the idea. That now, instead of all of that, you can just fire up you know, your web browser or, or a mobile app on your phone, see a doctor, and it takes 15 minutes, and you're done from wherever you are. Yeah. Of course, there's going to be some things you want to go see a doctor for, but for the vast majority, this is so much more convenient. You know, It's better for our economy. It helps people get the healthcare that maybe they've been avoiding getting because it's such a pain to go see the doctor. Everybody wins. And so I think what we have seen in the past 18 months because of the pandemic is a digital acceleration, which is the trends that have been going on for the last 15, 20 years. People talk a lot about digital transformation, right? Yeah, yeah. And every firm has been, you know, in a digital transformation uh, mode for the last 10, 15, 20 years, right? Where, you know, slowly you're answering the call of, you know, your your industry getting digitized, new, new competitors coming online, doing things I talked about before. And so you're transforming. What happened over the pandemic is an acceleration of those trends. Those trends were already here but it just happened faster than ever before. We did a survey of a few thousand uh, enterprises mm. around, around the world, across every industry. And we asked a bunch of questions. And one of the questions we asked was, you know, how much has COVID accelerated your digital strategy? And on average, people responded that the pandemic accelerated their digital roadmaps by an average of six years. Wow. Right? Right. And so what it's done is just taken this future that was already coming, where so many of these, you know, interesting things were getting digitized and experiences were becoming more software powered. And it just pulled that future closer to us. It pulled it in. Right. And now every company is saying, Okay, like, you know, we have these experiences and we had to build them really quickly over COVID. Now, how are we gonna make them even better? And how are we gonna keep investing in this? And oh, by the way, my competitors they did the same thing, so we're all kind of in the same boat. Yeah, yeah. So now we have to keep investing. And so it just took this software-powered future that we're heading towards and it pulled it in and accelerated everybody's roadmaps to get there.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can we go back to Detroit for a second? Like literally, I, you know. No, I mean, not literally, you know, uh, so metaphysically. Um, <laughs> so could you just give a sense of kind of where and how you grew up cuz I I know listeners are always interested in me mean, you've I think you've started four companies then to Twilio's your fourth is that right
1: Yeah the, secretly a fifth I actually started my first company when I was in middle school
0: Oh that's great so where do you come from how do where does the startup bug come from Well
1: I'll tell you that when I was when I was growing up when I was a, a little kid my dad would bring Uh, home cardboard from work he was a radiologist and they they packed x-ray film in cardboard and instead of throwing it out because back then they didn't even have recycling they would just throw it all out he would bring it home and we would do projects with it and you know we would make things we'd make robots or we'd make a i remember we'd make a vcr out of a cardboard (laughs) box
0: right and it was like imagine it didn't it wasn't great if you actually wanted to watch something but i'm sure it looked cool
1: well, that's the thing. It would be a cardboard box, and I'd draw the buttons on it with a magic marker and like do all that. Yeah. And at the end of it, I would say to my dad, like, okay, now make it really work. And he would be like, Ugh, you know, I don't know how to do that. Like, it gives me a multinational corporation with an electronics manufacturing facility to make a real VCR. I was like, yeah. all, I, all I know how to do is draw buttons on a, on a cardboard box. And it was always frustrating to me as a kid, as someone who wanted to build, as a builder, that like, oh, we can't make things that really work, even though somebody in this world can, but I can't. That was always so frustrating to me. And then we mm. got our first computer, an Apple IIe. How old were you? Uh, probably about five years old. Yeah. So we got our first computer. And suddenly, here was a machine that you could make it do real things. Like you could write little mm. bits of, you know, at the time, basic software, and it did real things. And that was really cool. I remember I built a address book application for I don't know why. I don't know, like you know, what what address, how many people does a you know, a five year old having their address book? Yeah.
0: yeah, your black book at the time probably wasn't overflowing with yeah. business. Mom, contacts. dad,
1: sister. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and but for some reason I built that and was like, Oh, that's really cool. Like, I built that. But the thing was at the time it was like who could appreciate that? It's like, okay, well I'll show it show it to my parents, right? And they'd be like, Oh, good job, Josh. Yeah. And that was about it. And so it was still frustrating because, you know, you go down to the, you know, remember when there were computer stores, you go down to the computer store, oh, yeah. and there were all these like boxes of software you could go buy. I'm like, well, that was the real stuff. I can't do that. You know, what would it take for, a, you know, someone to get their own software in a box at the store? Mm. You know, you'd have to find a publisher and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, I can't do that. So roll ahead to 1995 when the internet really becomes apparent and i showed up at, at university in the fall of 1995 and like when most people show up at the university like what are they excited about they're excited about partying they're excited about dating yeah i was most excited about a 10 megabit ethernet jack in my dorm room because <laughs> i was accustomed like that was the most exciting thing about getting okay see you later mom and dad i am excited about this ethernet jack in my dorm room because you know at the time you had you had your 288 modem dial up And suddenly I have 10 megabit fast internet. So the first thing I did, this is like a month after the Netscape IPO where everyone was like, holy crap, this internet thing is going to be big. I FTP down a copy of Netscape Navigator 1.0 and started exploring this brand new thing called the web. And what was amazing about the web and the internet was now I could write software that really worked and the world could see it.
0: Yes, Right. there's
1: no publisher you have to get into a box at the at the computer store you could build something and if you built something that was interesting at the time there were millions of people and then nowadays of course billions of people who could actually use the thing that you built and so to me that was finally the best incarnation of like I as just this you know who am I I'm just a kid but I could build something that really works and if it's the right thing the world can see it
0: how cool is that so what did you build what was the first thing that you built well
1: i i decided that you know a few things one i've always sort of thought that the best way to learn something is just to to kind of force yourself to do it It, like i'm not i'm not a real great book learner like i'm kind of a person who learns by doing so i've always thought that well if, if you commit to building something to like a customer then you have to go figure it out and so myself and a couple of friends we decided to start our first company And we said, let's figure out an idea. And we realized that on the college campus, there were all these note-taking services. I don't know how popular Mm. this this is for your audience, but at least when I was in school in the mid-90s and across the United States, every campus had these note-taking services where they would pay college students who were in these very large courses to take their lecture notes, and then they would Xerox the notes for other students who wanted to buy them.
0: You went to university in 95, which that means we must be the same age because I started – I went to UC Santa Barbara in 1995 and also was just – that was when I first discovered Netscape as well. So yeah. I, your story your story resonates.
1: And did you have a note-taking service at uh, UC Santa Barbara? We
0: did. Yep. We did. Do you remember what it was called? I do not. <laughs> I do not.
1: I You know, if I thought about it, I could probably actually pull up the name of it in my head because I knew all yeah. – but yeah, every campus had these things and for 50 bucks a semester, a student could go in and after every lecture, get a copy of, of the lecture notes for their courses and study aids and things like that. And you know, you didn't have this problem in Santa Barbara, which is in beautiful Southern California at the University of Michigan where I was, you would have to trek in the snow to go get your lecture notes. Mm. You know, it was like a Uphill both ways. Uphill both ways. <laughs> and so we said, wouldn't the internet be better, a better way to like get these right. lecture notes? So we started this company. It was called Versity.com and we paid college students to essentially upload their lecture notes and then we gave them away for free to any student who wanted to view these lecture notes and it was just an idea for the most part that we, you know, we thought it merit and college students would love this thing yeah but our biggest motivation was actually just having an excuse to play around with this brand new thing called the internet right and as it turns out it was a great idea uh, it took off on our campus. We launched in a bunch more campuses. We raised a bunch of venture capital. We ended up dropping out of school. I mean the whole dot-com story that you'd imagine. Oh,
0: really? Oh, so because this was, yeah, 90s, late 90s. So you were right in the – Late the, 90s. Yeah, we the just started this thing it. as a lark oh,
1: yeah. to, to just play around with this thing called the internet. We didn't even care about making money. We just wanted to play around with this new technology.
0: That's a perfect dot com business for the for the late nineties.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. We raised a bunch of venture capital. Nobody cared about revenue. We raised about twelve million of venture capital, which at the time was a lot of money. Uh, nowadays, that's actually you know that's kind of like a, a, a seed a cute amount of money. Yeah, it's a seed round. <laughs> and you know, in the life of the company, we only made I think about twenty four thousand dollars of revenue. But everyone was okay with that. The investors were like, you know, we we don't care about revenue. You just want to acquire an audience. Eyeballs were the measurement, right? Totally. And we did exactly that. We had millions of college students coming to this website uh, every day to go get their lecture notes. And so a very typical story. We ended up selling it to a competitor in an all-stock deal so that the competitor could file to go public. They did. They filed to go public in April of 2000, and they didn't get out because the market crashed in April of 2000, and they were bankrupt by August. So just wow. the classic dot com story.
0: So did you did you go through that classic like, oh, my God, I'm about to be a millionaire. You know, I dropped out of college. I'm about to be a millionaire. And then, oh, wait, never mind.
1: Totally. We went from like from nothing like our company was worth nothing to worth like twenty five million dollars to worth one hundred million dollars to worth a billion dollars to worth zero all in the course of like 18 months. It was a roller coaster. And we were, you know, 20, 20 years old, you know.
0: And that experience, did that sear anything into your brain or your soul that has you've taken with you since then when you've done all these other startups? Because that's quite a – I remember reading at the time because I was covering – I graduated in 99 and started covering the dot-com boom and mostly the bust here in San Francisco. And you start to see these stories about like people getting – needing therapy. A lot of these young people who are like, I am just come into generational wealth and then it goes poof. It's all gone and it's just that whole r- roller coaster is it was an extraordinary time in history
1: you know I think we were able to take it in stride I mean in the reality I was always kind of looking at it as like easy come easy go like who knows what's <laughs> gonna happen but what I you know what I realized was you know a few things first of all the most important things that we have in life are the knowledge that we acquire through all these experiences and the relationships that we build and so immediately after the implosion of this company that had acquired us, Mm. you know, a a person that I knew who was starting a company, and they were starting it during the during this implosion. So it was a tough time to start a company, you know, they had the idea for this online ticketing exchange. And so my friends, uh, Jeff Fleur and Eric Baker, had this idea for StubHub. And they called and said, Hey, like, you know, we need to get this thing off the ground, you just did this. So you know the technology, right. you know how to do it. Like, can you help us get this thing off the ground? And I said, all right, let's do it. So if you think about it, it was the relationships I had built and I had met them through the course of building yeah. my first company. And it was the skills I had learned. I mean, a few years earlier, I would have had no idea how to build a website, uh, but I had to go figure it all out. Those were valuable to me that got, found me my next thing. And so, you know, I think taking it all in stride, not letting it get to your head, not letting it, you know, not having a sense of, of entitlement, like, oh, I deserved all that money that yeah, I made yeah, yeah. That I, in six months, <laughs> you know, like generational all that, money all that, that fake, money. Yeah, yeah. Like fake money. Yeah, you're like, you know, like take it all in stride. But the one thing that I, you know, I always think that we all have to optimize for, you know, and I and I advise this to people a lot is like when you make big decisions about like jobs you take or job you leave or whatever it is you do, the one thing no one can take away from you, and the one thing that you really persist through everything, whether you make money or not. Hmm. is your skills, your knowledge, are you gaining knowledge, are you learning, and your relationships. Do people trust you? Do they want to work with you? And if you do things that build those two things, build your relationships and build your knowledge, then you know what? You really can't make too many mistakes.
0: Right. Jumping around a bit, but I also wanted to talk about the Bay Area. You're in San Francisco right now, currently, as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of your um, peers have left and done so very noisily. And being like, well, you know, screw California, this place sucks, taxes are too high, etc. I'm going to Miami, I'm going to Austin, I'm going to anywhere but here. And oh, by the way, to your earlier point around the changes that have happened, you can work anywhere for a lot of white collar jobs. And there's a lot of people who are being like, you know what, screw this, I'm out of here. And this is obviously a leading question because you kind of put out a little tweet storm when all of this was really hot saying, not me. And I'm just, I was wondering if you could just explain that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start with like, look, San Francisco is where I live. This is where my company is. This is where my family is. Our friends are. My kids' friends are. This is my community. And so when going gets tough, you know, and this pandemic has been incredibly hard for so many folks in our society. And then you look at the technology industry and like, look, we're blessed that our products are relevant. They're more relevant than ever before. And companies have needed the things that we make and consumers have needed our digital products. And so our companies are doing well. We're flourishing. So many people around us are not. What are you going to do? Are you going to take, are you going to pick up your chips and leave and like give the middle finger on the way out? And say, wow, this is pretty (laughs) inconvenient because there's someone who's homeless in my city. Like, that's pretty inconvenient. Or you can be like, no, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to do something to help my community. And I think that story is playing out in cities all around the world where, you know, obviously, you know, wealth income disparities have been growing around the world. And you know, here in San Francisco, there's been a consistent battle between like the technology people that are here. And so many have come here over the last decade. And then the people who aren't in the technology field. And and in many ways, those folks are saying, hey, technology people, what are you doing to help? What are you doing to be a part of this community? Or are you just here? And you know, you're content displacing and to not be engaged and just like do your thing. And to me, I think that this is a moment, this pandemic is a clear moment where it's like, it's incumbent upon us to invest back in our community. Say, how can I help? How can I roll up my sleeves? And so I have no tolerance for people who are like, peace out. And by the way, that place is a shithole. You know, it's like, well, do something. Yeah. Use your blessings. If you, and I'm not talking, by the way, about, you know, folks who are like young in their careers and they're living in a small apartment with a bunch of roommates. I'm like, I get it. This pandemic was hard, having to be trapped. Like, do what you got to do. Find a place to live, where you've got space, where you can maintain your mental health, all sorts of things. I am talking about billionaires. I'm talking about people who have made a ton of money, who are perfectly comfortable. Totally. And who could be contributing back, but instead chose to leave. And that's what I just don't have a lot of tolerance for.
0: Yeah, because it feels extractive. It all feels very extractive. Because there is... As we've talked about a lot on this pod, there's a special kind of alchemy that happens here when you have people who have done really well. You have venture capitalists, you have a whole professional kind of layer of people who know how to take ideas and make them into big, world changing things. And a lot of people have benefited from that. And so I do think people were kind of like, wait a minute, you just, now you've made your money, now you're out, and you're kind of shitting on us on the way out. This just feels
1: terrible. (laughs) Exactly. And it's just, that's not the kind of company that I want Twilio to be. That's not the kind of leader that I want to be. You know, I think about companies. Mm. Companies are a bizarre social contract, right? Like think about Twilio, my company. At the end of the day, it is a piece of paper filed in the state of Delaware. That's what allows Twilio to exist. And it allows Twilio to own you know, property and sign contracts and employ people and you know, do all these things, right? This is an invention of society that we believe collectively the existence of corporations allows us to accomplish more together and to create a wellness for our society, create more wealth and create more prosperity and, and all that better outcomes than if we didn't have corporations. And so broadly speaking, that contract between companies and society, I think, is a really important one. And our goal at Twilio is to say, you know, my goal is to say, like, well, how can we make sure that we are always adding to society and and therefore fulfilling our part of that contract? You know, are we going to leave our communities and society more broadly better off because we existed, because we did something together under this umbrella of a corporation called Twilio as the world around us better off? And I think the answer to that question needs to be yes. And so what's you know, happening in San Francisco is just a part of that. But you know, Twilio, we put aside 1% of the equity of our company to fund Twilio.org, mm. which is doing good with our technology and our people and our money to help improve the world. We committed to helping to vaccinate a billion people around the world equitably using our technology, using grant funding, using our people as volunteers. And we're well on our way. We've already helped to vaccinate over 300 million people with our technology and and the grants that we've done. We just did a a big grant to Gavi and UNICEF and Save the Children Mm. to do equitable vaccine distribution around the world. And, you know, I thought it was very surprising, actually, that not a lot of companies were participating in that. Yeah. You know, when we committed the money to Gavi to provide this vaccine distribution assistance, we were the second largest corporation and the largest technology corporation by, you know, by dollar, the, the amount that we gave. Right. I was startled by that. I would have thought, aren't we all pitching in here? Like, don't we have to vaccinate the world so that we can save lives? It's the ethical thing to do. It's also practical in terms of like, we, you know, building back the world and the economies of the world and our own businesses. Like, don't we need to vaccinate the world so we can move on from this pandemic? And I was, I was startled. And so, you know, I just think part of building a company, especially in this era is to say, look, look, how can we be a great neighbor? and i think doing that makes customers want to work with you it makes the best employees want to work for you because we all want to be a part of building something bigger and if this pandemic has shown us something there is an opportunity globally to all come together to accomplish these truly world-changing things and you know there's either like we're going to do it or we're not and if we don't we're all going to suffer and i think climate change is another one
0: Absolutely. Well, I was going to ask you, I know we're running short on time, but um to your point around what you do as a corporation, I've spoken a lot with a lot of executives who have talked about the changing role of the corporation and how especially younger workers view themselves almost as a kind of a in a way a citizen of the company at which they work and have real expectations around you know, a company having values that align with theirs, or that are actually doing things that they believe in, etc. And I was just wondering if you have seen that evolution or revolution of just how people view companies and what they expect from you, especially when you know, the world's been in a pretty crazy place these last few years, taking stands and doing things that actually matter.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I don't even think that it's of what, you know, employees or young employees expect of us. I think it's what we expect of ourselves.
0: You know, why are we here?
1: Why did I start this company? You know, what, what makes us feel good at the end of the day? And I think it's obviously building a successful company, serving our customers. You know, that's obviously key, you know, cause you don't have a company if you don't do that. But on top of that, it's okay. So talent, how are we going to unleash the best from all of our people? And, you know, my goal is that Twilio is where all of our employees would say they are, they are doing, and they have done their best work of their career. But then also it's like, what's the impact on society and how is our technology used and how do we show up as a company? And that's where I believe, you know, we should be a good neighbor and that our communities and society around us should be better off. And I think we get rewarded by our customers, by our employees and by our shareholders. Shareholders, by the way, have a big focus on ESG. Yeah. And. You know, that's a relatively new thing. You know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, I don't think there was such a focus on environmental, social, and governance issues that now the best investors, the very large shareholders, they are really focused on ESG, and that's good too. So I think society in a lot of ways is aligning around corporations are so powerful in the current, in our society, that that power has got to be used for the betterment of everyone. And if it's not, customers employees shareholders they're starting to say that's not right and i I think that's a i think that's a positive change
0: yeah um three questions i'll let you go one what was your seventh grade business two what was your worst day of work and three what was the single nicest thing someone's done to you in the work context or done for you or single act of kindness that has stuck with you
1: all right my seventh grade business was a video production company. Oh. So I was really fascinated by video, video production, like, you know, the ability to create, you know, you watch TV and you'd be like, oh, how did they do that cool thing? I wanted to be able to do all that stuff.
0: So that was not using the cardboard VCR, that business. Yeah, this is was like, using.
1: this is like <laughs> real, like my dad had a video camera, you know, this was the 80s. Right. And it was like, you know, just like like, you know, the kind of typical consumer grade, big, heavy thing. And I was like, but how do I do the real stuff that you see on TV? Like all those cool effects and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's like obviously takes a bunch of gear and like professional grade stuff. And I was like, well, I want that. But I'm, you know, 13 years old. I can't afford that. Well, how do you yeah. do it? You start a company and make money and then be able to afford all the gear and figure out how it all works and like get better and better and better at it. So kind of back to the same thing is like, what's the good way to learn something? Find a customer and force yourself to figure it out. That's what I did. I started a company that was videotaping, you know, weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs and all this kind of stuff. Uh. And you know, I started out small when I was thirteen years old. I would do a you know three-year-old's birthday party, and they'd pay me you know fifty dollars. And by the time I graduated high school, I had worked my way up, both in terms of skills and the gear that I had, but also the types of events I was doing. I'd do a wedding on a Saturday or like a full uh, you know afternoon and i make like $10,000 for the weekend of like wow. shooting this video and editing it and doing the ceremony and the party and the, doing the video of the photos and the, I've had the time of my life and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, do the whole shit. <laughs> and like, it was like kind of a real gig. Um, and so that was how I, wow. you know, that was my little, that was my little company. It was called Video Visions. It had a great tagline. I like it. Look forward to looking back.
0: Oh, that's a that is a good tagline. I like it. It is pretty I good. I remember that's my good. aunt. My aunt came up with that one,
1: um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So that was my that was my seventh grade company that I started. Right. Worst day of work. Worst day of work. I would probably say so. Shortly after we went public in we went public in 2016, and a very large customer of ours was Uber, and they hmm. were growing like a weed. And they are still yeah. a fantastic, huge customer of ours. We love working with them. But they were growing, they were on such a growth tear as a company. We had been working with them for years and years and years, that they have been growing so much that they were becoming such an oversized part of our business. Mm. And they had grown from almost nothing. They were about a $60 million a year account for us at that point. Yeah. And, you know, I remember at the time we had very few salespeople in the company because Twilio has been was at the time especially largely just adopted by developers, who was self-service, was brought in. And so we had very few salespeople. We had a salesperson who, you know, had the Uber account, but that salesperson also had like 30 other accounts. And yet they were they had grown, you know, spending five million a year, 10, 20, 30, and they got gotten yeah. to 60 million a year very quickly. And still like just one of 30 accounts that the sales rep had. And you know, and honestly, they were like, well, you know, we're fine. We don't really need anything. And you know, their priorities had changed and they were more focused on cost savings than than growth. And, yeah. you know, because we didn't have that like high touch relationship with them, we kind of weren't in the know. And they came to us one day and they said, hey, you know what, we're going to change our spending with you and we're going to spend a lot less. When they gave us that heads up, because they were such a meaningful part of our business, we had to you know, tell shareholders it was a responsible thing to do. So on our earnings mm. call, we said, by the way, one of our largest customers, I think maybe our largest customer at that time, is going to change their spending pattern and um, we expect them to spend less going forward. And, you know, our stock lost like half of its value in one day. And, oh, wow. and, you know, for a young public company to have kind of that unforced error in like only our third quarter reporting out. Right. All of our employees were like, what just happened? And, you know, how could you let this happen, Jeff? And, you know, I d- it wasn't the stock price because like, you know, obviously stock price is the stock price and it, you know, it goes up and it goes down and that's part of being a public company. Yeah. It was more that sense of like, how you know, we let down people and we let down our employees and we let down our shareholders and right. we let down folks. And we did what, you know, the right thing to do was we were just, you know, disclosed it as soon as we knew that we thought something material might change about the business. But at the same time, it was that sense of like, you know, how do we not make a mistake like that again? Right. And, you know, and so we learned a lot in that moment about how to, mm. you know, the types of relationships we need to build with customers. And subsequently, we started building out our sales team quite a bit. Now our sales team is, is a very large sales team that, you know, we're able to give really high touch, great experiences to all of our customers. And so things like that. But, um, you know, that was, I'd say, a low point because it was that feeling of having let folks down.
0: Right. And then the last thing, is there something someone done, has done for you that has stuck with you? Like an act of kindness you
1: know, I'm going to go back. You mentioned Mitch Kapor earlier, and you said he was one of the yeah. first guests on your podcast. He was a very early investor in Tulio. Mitch and his his amazing wife, Frida.
0: Yeah, they were both on.
1: They were both on. Fantastic. They have long been big proponents and vocal about diversity in tech. Hmm. Long before this was a popular conversation.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And, and Early investors in Twilio, they kept bending my ear, trying to bend my ear about, Jeff, are you thinking about diversity? Are you thinking about diversity? Hmm. And in the very early days, I was like, I don't have time for this. I got to build a company. I got to not go out of business. Like I've got, yeah. you know, the real things I have to go think about. And I was, I was like, oh yeah, one day, all the luxury of thinking about diversity. But they were persistent. They kept saying, Jeff, and they kept inviting me to dinners where they would be talking about diversity. And finally I said, all right, I'm going to go to this dinner. And I went there and I'm hearing about diversity and, and, and just learning about the time because I hadn't thought about it a lot.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had this realization of like, well, wait a minute. You know, I think the company at the time was maybe like 20, 30 people. And I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to wait till we're a company of like, you know, a thousand white male engineers and then say, <laughs> okay, now it's going to be diversity. Now. Like, is there ever yeah. going to be a time when I've said, okay, all the other business challenges have been solved. I've got nothing else to do. Now I'll go focus on the... like, no, the time to start is now. Build a diverse and inclusive company while you can affect those things Yeah, when you're small so that later you have a company that you're proud of. And so I'm so appreciative of Mitch and Frida for being very persistent Mm. and convincing me early on that building an inclusive company, building equity, focusing on diversity, that that is something you don't have the luxury of waiting. If you wait, you fail that doing it in the early days of a company, focusing on that, that, that is the way to build a company. And I'm really appreciative that they did that.
0: And that is all the time we have. I wanted to thank Jeff for taking the time, especially uh, amid all the the madness that they were running around this week for their, their conference. I want to thank you guys all for listening and for the ratings and for the reviews and for the little tips through ACAST's creator feature. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is it for me this week. I'm not writing, thankfully. I might not even be tweeting much, although, you know, I'm not a huge tweeter in the best of times, but uh, I'm off this week, hanging out and catching up with some old friends. So I will be back next week writing about who knows what, truly something, you know, mildly or wildly controversial related to tech. But in the meantime, have a fabulous weekend and thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Students, stay up to date on the stories that matter by getting a Times digital subscription for less than 8p a day. Receive six months free access to Perlego's online library of academic resources and tools and access to the extensive Times archive, so you can always be the most informed and well-read person on campus. Subscribe today at thetimes.co.uk slash student.